When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Since 1990, divorce rates have doubled for people over 50, and they've tripled for those 65 and older. Who saw this coming? Why is this happening? What do we do about it? Meredith Shirey is the founder and practice director at Meredith Shirey Marriage and Family Therapy, an expert in couple and relational issues. She's been featured on Bravo TV, Elite Daily, uh, and thought catalog for her advice on addressing infidelity, recognizing emotional abuse, and facilitating more effective communication between romantic partners. She believes one of the biggest problems is that we've allowed ourselves to become disconnected. It happens in subtle ways. Each negative interaction is like a grain of sand, Meredith says, but eventually those grains pile up and become an entire beach of sand. She says the sooner you start working to repair the connection, the better chance you'll have for a happy marriage. Is it time for me to take Lynn, my wife, on a date? Maybe. Let's see what Meredith has to say about it. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. So Meredith, thank you for joining us here on the Retire Sooner podcast. And I want to get into, you know, in my the last book that I just published, What the Happiest Retirees Know, we have a chapter on, really on love, relationships. And when we're thinking about retiring, we're thinking about a happy retirement, a huge part of it is the relationship we have with our partner, or our spouse. And, you know, in reading about and seeing you or in, in reading your work, uh, you've, I don't know where I read this, but the thought around divorce rates that have been declining in general, but age 50 plus divorce rates doubling since the the early nineties. And then 65 plus, uh, have tripled. What, what is going on with, is that all true? Is that like just an opinion or those pretty reliable statistics? Like that's really what's happening. Yeah. I'm going to be an annoying therapist and tell you it depends. But, um, you know, statistics are always one of those things that's changing. And, you know, is it being underreported, overreported? And where are you getting the samples? So, but I would say generally from everything I've seen, that is roughly the case. Yes. There is this huge rise in divorce rate among people who are empty nesters. So that would account for, you know, again, over 50, over 65. So there's a lot of reasons why this happens. And some of these are parallel to the reasons why divorce rates in general have been on the rise since, you know, the 1950s and 1900s. Um, 
And a lot of it has to do now, I think, with this rise, because we have a longer life expectancy. And it used to be that, you know, when you got married, it was marriage for life. And if you happen to like this person, great. But (laughs) you you weren't expected to to because... If you have, you know, it was great, like sugar on top. But, you know, if you think back in, in, you know, very kind of early civilizations, right, marriage was an economic arrangement. It was not a love match. And so then with the Industrial Revolution, we started moving to having a love match. So our, our priorities around finding this partner changed, right? So back in the days of old, you know, one, you had women who were not in the workforce, so they financially and economically had no ability to leave if they wanted to, plus intense social stigma if they did, yeah. And then, you know, as we've kind of moved past that, women have more economic flexibility now, but also too, it's, we want such different things from marriage than what we did, you know, several hundred years ago. Okay, so that, I I don't know, Meredith, I don't know if I've ever really thought of it that way, but it makes total sense is that 200 years ago, now again, there are plenty of movies that go back hundreds of years and the, their love stories. But you're you're saying that most, most of the time, a, a union or a marriage really was very much just an economic thing. Is that, that's kind of the way marriage has kind of, that, that was early marriage days is what you're saying. Right, yes. So basically, history of humans up to a around the industrial, um, excuse me, industrial revolution, that was the case. It was an economic arrangement usually made by the parents. And maybe you know this person before, maybe you don't. So it was kind of a toss of about, is this going to be terrible? And if so, I'm just going to hope that my partner dies before I do and hopefully quickly, or, you know, or am I just going to be in, in misery in misery for forever? But this was also a time too when the role of religion plays into that too. So it was like, okay, the afterlife is supposed to be where you're happy. So, so the purpose of marriage was not to make you happy. Mm. And now, again, post-industrial revolution, that's our goal, right? The idea of being someone for, you know, 50, 60 years and being miserable sounds terrible, right? Right, right. No one of us want to do that. That sounds awful. And so that's part of this is now, too, with increased life expectancies, when you have two people who, you know, they've gone through the business of child rearing, all those things, and then they come to this point and say, well, wait a sec, Kids are gone, but now I still have another, you know, 30, 40, 50 years left to live. I don't want to deal with you. And Uh because we have the economic flexibility now, it's a lot easier to envision a life without that person Mm. and not wanting to spend again the next several decades with someone that maybe you're not so fond of. Meredith, let's go back to the kind of the earlier statistics here. Have divorce rates in general been going down since the 1990s or they've been going up and they've been going up a lot for the for people 50 and 65 plus yeah i'm not entirely sure about the overall trend but for the 50 60 plus absolutely that is very very spot on um you know again statistics are tricky uh Actually, it's interesting with like the millennial generation and after that, they tend to be more likely to cohabitate, more likely to have a prenuptial agreement. And so they're delaying getting married if they get married at all. And I think that that accounts for some of this this fluctuation that feels, it feels very paradoxical, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. That it, okay, divorce is going down, but how is it going up in this demographic so significantly? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're just saying that we're, we're waiting in general, we're waiting longer to get married. So it used to be we're married in our early to mid 20s now it's more like late 20s to, to 30s not uncommon at all and that makes and we have more economic independence so it's 
it is less and less economic relationships, more, hey, this is who I want to be with. So, so that, mm-hmm. let's say the newer marriage, vintage of marriages, maybe are even more bonded in happiness, whereas someone who's been married for 40, 30 years, let's say, uh, that's now in retirement, they may have been married in an older vintage of, well, let's just get married because we, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's the, like what you're supposed to do in your 20s. Uh, but the catalyst, so, so again, we've kind of gone through these different generations. In today's, let's call it baby boomer, we're, and I know that this, this terminology, maybe to explain this gray divorce scenario, and then what are the big catalysts? Is it beyond just, hey, the kids are out of the house? What, what are some of the other catalysts for this group and the, and the rise in divorce rates? So... I would say the biggest overarching catalyst, and this is true for any relationship, is have we allowed ourselves to become disconnected, you know, and, and that happens in such subtle ways, you know, it's not like you didn't text your wife back once and then that's it, right? If you think about, though, all these tiny little moments, and if we don't address them, if we don't find a way to repair and reconnect, it's almost like every little interaction becomes a grain of sand, right? One little grain of sand, not a big deal. But then when you have a multitude of these over decades, then you've got a beach. So then you've got a big problem. So what I think happens for every couple that ends up saying, you know, we quote unquote fell out of love, it's because we had so many of those little moments of disconnection that it didn't seem tenable, right? And that we we do emotionally close ourselves off at some point. There is kind of a, a point of no return, right? Where we're no longer interested in trying to repair. So the sooner you repair, the better. The easier. The sooner you try to fix, the yes. better, right? Right, exactly. How much of it is, and again, I guess, the, Meredith, this goes for... I mean, any age, really. This disconnect. I, I love this analogy. Well, it's a dark analogy, but the the, the thought of <laughs> yeah, you know, therapist life. Yeah, gr- grain of sand, and it's no no big deal if it's a few, but eventually it's a dump truck worth of sand, and all of a sudden I can't you can't get out from under it, and it's almost too late to go to therapy. Um, but let me just go back, and, and then I my my wonder too, how much of it is societal, but that's kind of a broad term that kind of goes into economic independence, social media. Uh, you mentioned just general disconnectedness. And is that so, uh, just a societal, is there something to do with our society today that makes us a little bit more disconnected? If you think about, I'm, I'm fascinated by Facebook's change to meta, right? Like they're betting their entire fortune future on a, on a parallel universe that is just fate made up, right? It's a, it's a, the metaverse is just a big video game that you can live in. And when I think about that, it's almost, to me, it's like a sad thing. Like, I guess for some people that might be great and it may be a really nice outlet, but for humanity in general, it's, to me, it's actually really sad that, that, uh, one of the largest companies on the planet is betting the future of the company on living in a, in a fake world, fake society, virtual society, right? I mean, that's the metaverse, isn't it? Mm, yeah. I mean, so that's societally, a, I actually are didn't we, know are, about that. That's terrifying. Yeah. Think about it. So if you look at Facebook and I'm not saying to sell the stock or buy the stock but as, uh, to our listeners, but if you go look at Facebook, the symbol is still FB as in Facebook, but the, the name is now changed. It's meta. They have changed their name mm. to Meta because their future is the Metaverse. Like, put on the Oculus glasses and live in a fake world, right? Um, mm. So 
again, it means you're probably going to have more uh, couples that you need to help. But let's go back to what you do. So you've got a couple, they've got maybe not a dump truck of sand with your analogy, but it's starting to really build. When is it the point of no return? How often are you able to help people when they come to you? Couple, they've been together for seven years, 10 years, 50, I don't know what the number is. And what do you, what do you typically see when you've got this disconnect? What is the problem usually? Hmm. So the overarching thing is more about perspective. If I'm looking at, you know, again, this dump truck of sand and it looks huge and I already feel buried in it, I'm not going to be that committed to wanting to dig out of it. If you look from your perspective and it looks like a little, you know, a little like gallon bucket of sand, that's not so bad, right? So it's it's perspective and it's about each person's willingness to to try, right, to work on this. Because a lot of times there will be a mismatch in terms of people's uh, commitment to the relationship a little bit. But overall, you both have to be very, very committed to saving it. It cannot fall on one person. And... I find that couples do much better and have much better outcomes in therapy if they come in sooner. So before we're both, (laughs) if we're both under this dump truck of sand, you know, most of the time that's when they're just kind of checking the box to say, all right, we tried this before we got a divorce, but they weren't really actually interested in trying, right? That's, that's kind of the point of no return. You you can tell, right? A couple comes in and they're checking the box as an example. You, you, You can kind of tell pretty quickly. Usually, yeah. So one of the biggest things that I see of the couples who are kind of, you know, again, on the, we, we've put too much sand in the back of this truck are the couples who have no interest in listening to each other. And I will, you know, try to jump in and try to reframe and slow down. But if they really have no interest in hearing what the other person says, learning about the other person's perspective and trying something new, you know, not to sound like a total downer, but that that's a situation where I don't have quite a bit of, I don't have so much hope for them. But here's the interesting thing, because, you know, as we talk about disconnection, I think it's important to, to think about the role of happiness and the priority of happiness in marriages, because this is a cultural thing and it does have a big impact. So divorce rates in the U.S. compared to many other, most of the world actually, are, are significantly higher. And that's because we live in this individualistic culture where we choose our love match, right? And so our our priority is to be happy. And so then there's all of this pressure and this, if I'm not happy, something's wrong. If I'm not happy, I chose wrong. Versus in other cultures where if there's an arranged marriage, your first priority probably isn't to be in love and happy with this person. And so maybe you put up with more because again, you're not looking for them to fill that role and in those countries, the stigma is usually around saying you can't pursue your individual happiness over the stability and the the you know well being of the family. But again, it's oh. it's not like there's ever a right or wrong. It's just very very different lenses. Fast. So so if we go to uh, another culture, um, I don't know what that culture would be. Maybe it's maybe it's India, Asia. I don't, I don't know. Some let's say something very different than, than the United States. What about just the natural in- inclination of humans to to actually be with a, the right fit, though? Does that just kind of culturally go away, or is that always there, bubbling up under the surface? If you go to one of these other cultures, like what happens to that natural thought of like the love of your life kind of thing, or right? mm-hmm. the natural yeah. wanting to be happy? Does that really go away? 
No, because we're a social bonding species and we get a whole lot of oxytocin from having deep connection with someone, having a deep affection for them. And the thing is, it's more of thinking about the role of, you know, your spouse. They're not seeing their spouse as maybe needing to, again, supply that romantic love. And it's interesting because like affairs, I think, happen just universally, but that's a culture where it's a little more accepted, not in terms of it should happen, but if it happens, getting a divorce is worse than breaking up the family. So it's, you know, if you're, Mm. if you don't romantically love this person, find another outlet, find some other way to fulfill yourself, but you don't get to break up the family just because you want something different, which is again, almost entirely different than this country. Yeah, obviously that's totally unacceptable here in the United States, right? right? It's not that is not the cultural norm, right? You're oh on gosh, the no, you're shamed for staying. Page, right, you're you're on like page six, right? If you, if, if the minute something like that happens, but if if you go to, is it would you say in Europe or in India? Where is it? Where is that more acceptable? I would say honestly. If you compared world- worldwide, the U.S. stands out m- most in terms of having that individualistic, you know, which again is kind of part of our culture, right? You know, we're the we're the country of you know pursuit of happiness, right? And dream as big as you can, which is great, but there's a downside to it. Everything's double edged. So most other places in the world, they do have more of this collectivist. You know, the stability of the family is the first priority. So um, Europe, yes, I would say Europe is like a slight step down. So if we, you know, we went USA's highest and then, you know, Europe and then some of the other places, but I would say, um, Africa, the Middle East, um, South America, those, those places are certainly places where, um, getting a divorce would be far more stigmatized no matter the age. Wow. No kidding. I, I would never have really known that. I have heard, maybe heard of that, like, oh, and in, or in Italy, it's, it's, it's more acceptable mm-hmm. to have this romantic, but you know, hearing it from you as a as a marriage uh, therapist, it's kind of amazing. I guess it ma- it does make sense, but it's hard to conceive. What would you say if you're thinking of, let's say, gray divorce or, or you're getting divorced later in life? And maybe this is really a question for at any point, but I know you kind of have three questions that you need to be asking yourself to see if this is something that you really would be considering. Because, yes. because let, let, let me do, before you answer that, before we started recording, you had, you had been saying something around how just difficult, let's just remind people how brutal divorce is. Oh, so brutal. It's, it's one of the worst crises you can go through in your life, no matter the point that you're at. And, and I'm sure we'll get to this more later, but I think one of the biggest things that sets great divorce apart is that people forget how to be as conscious and as mindful and as thoughtful about it as they usually do when they're getting divorced earlier on. So if you've got young children running around your house, you can't ignore that, right? You have to think about their well-being. When the children are out of the house, it's kind of easier to say out of sight, out of mind. So gray divorce, what you're saying is that let's say you're in your 30s and you got little kids, that the, the two parents getting divorced might behave, you're saying, more civilized because the, the kids are there. What you're saying when you're 65, kids are totally out of the picture, you're saying those are maybe even less civilized. So it's an interesting thing. It's who are we being civil to? Is it to your partner? It depends. But I would say that, you know, civility towards your children and their reactions is a lot more flexible and compassionate when the kids are young 
versus again, when you're older, because I heard this quote someone say, and I was like, that's so, that's exactly what it is. It's, we forget that adult children can have hurt feelings too. You know, Mm. they're not right under our feet. So we're not thinking about how every decision we make is going to affect them, right? And again, it's not because we don't love them, but our job as parents is mostly done. They're emotionally responsible for taking care of themselves. And so we forget that if we're making a big change like this, it is going to affect them. It's so fascinating. So parents are always so worried when they have young kids. Is it the right time? Is it the right time? There is no right or wrong time. But you know, I rarely have a child in my office because the parents are going through a divorce. I get adult children in my office who are saying, it's been six years and I'm still so, so distraught and I don't know how to be and I don't know how to accept this and my parents tell me to get over it and I just, you know, I'm I'm trapped, right? That's what I see more. And so this is where this this uh, becomes a point of interest for me. Wow. So adult children, and I, I, I'm a product of divorce as well as a kid. I was, uh, my parents were divorced when I was kind of in the 12, maybe 10, 11 to 15 year range. It, it was a multi, it was a long process mm-hmm. of back and forth and back and forth. Did your parents get to go through a divorce? What happened with you growing up, by the way? How did you end up becoming yeah. a, 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 oh, a marriage and well. family therapist? <laughs> Let's see. Is this like a weekend retreat? How long do we have? <laughs> we'll be here for a minute. I'm kidding. Uh, so my parents divorced when I was 16. And at the time, it was quite frankly, pretty traumatic because I didn't know there were problems. They were very mm. good at making sure to keep everything under wraps. And so it felt like my world got turned upside down. And then on top of that, um, and not bashing my parents because we've done so much repair and I love them both so dearly. Um, they really put me in this parentified role. So my little sister was actually around how old you were. She was 12. So we all protected her. And then I got put in this kind of mediating role. And so I was hearing from both of my parents and all the mudslinging and everything else. And so I decided, well, maybe I'll get paid to you know, mediate family <laughs> dynamics in the future. So at 16, that, that's a word I don't know if I've heard before, but you were par- parentfi- parentified? Parentified. Par- so parentified <laughs> just is a fancy. Par- I'm sorry. You were parentified. <laughs> See, it's a silly word. You were parentified <laughs> and, and, and as a teenager. Yeah, parentified is just a very silly, fancy word for saying that a kid who is really too young to be given parental roles, responsibilities, information was put in that position, right? So, so at 16, I shouldn't have known about my parents' divorce settlement. Mm. You know, the ins and outs, like, you know, who was getting what from retirement, that kind of thing. That was not something that at 16 I needed to know. So that was, that's kind of what parentified looks like. Does that exactly, clarify we're, we're, that? I never heard that before. And that's exactly what happened to me. So yeah, starting at about 12, mm. I started hearing about it. And from, from mostly one side and heard a lot about it. Uh, I, I remember pretty vividly hearing about this and knowing that this was coming and then knowing that the divorce would happen and then it did and then it, it went back and forth for a couple of years. Um, but at the, then the older I got, you know, into 13, 14, 15, then I got even more from my parents about either side. So I heard a lot about that. Mm. Um, and I, again, I, I never, I don't know, I, I almost give it a little bit of credit of helping me maybe grow up a little bit quicker. So I always looked at it as almost a, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing to go through, at least the way I saw it. Maybe I think it was harder on my little, little siblings. So at the same time, I ended up with mm-hmm. my little siblings were one and two and three and four when they the, I, I'm the oldest of four and we have a pretty big gap. 
Um, but anyway, so so you kind of went through this, and then you decided to do this and pr- pursue this as a as a career. Right. Yeah. I might as well if I'm gonna do it, and I've been used to doing it for so long, I might as well you know get paid for it, right? Ideally. <laughs> um, let's go back to before we got to three questions. I wanted to kind of remind people that just how tough divorce can be, right? I mean, uh, I've I've in you know in the last decade or so, or the last five years. I've had a lot of really close friends go through a divorce. I've had um, a sibling go through divorce. Um, my mom go through a divorce. So another another divorce. So we've I've seen all, all this firsthand, and it is really it is really rough. And it, there's a really long period of time. It doesn't have to be. I always hear that oh, it's at least a year or two of terrible life. It doesn't necessarily seem to be. Not everybody goes through this horrible horrible time for years. But it kind of a range, right? From it could be anywhere. Is it's a really tough year, if kind of what you've said is it is pretty brutal, right? So everything about the divorce, whether it's your adjustment financially, emotionally, whatever, your children's adjustment, and every other piece in this, comes down to what is your relationship like with what is your relationship with the person that you're going through the divorce with like what are your power differentials what are you know what's that dynamic are you can you be kind of amicable is it pretty acrimoni- acrimonious good lord i cannot talk today i'm sorry um is it you know is it contentious is it is it um amicable and you know are you able to both hold space and respect them as as a partner i think everything else that comes from that you know, that's, that's kind of the drop that starts the bigger ripples. And then everyone is so different about how they process things. It's kind of the same reason why two people could go through the same incident and one person has PTSD and the other person doesn't. It's because we're all just wired so differently. So the point is not to try to make these like grand generalizations of what you should do when you shouldn't do. I think the most important thing anyone can do going through a divorce, no matter what age your children are, is Think about the emotional needs of your kids and talk to them. With young or older, young or adult children, because you you made the point earlier that it's really can be very tough for a 25 year old who's grown up with their parents and, oh, well, they're they're grown up. They're fine. But wait a minute. Mom or dad Mm -hmm. divorced. That can be really tough is what you're saying. Traumatic even. So. There's something that we we usually refer to when we're talking about like affairs of people doing this revisionist history where something happens, a trauma happens, and they go back in their memory reel and they say, wait a sec, were all of my memories a lie? Was all of this made up? Like, am I wrong? You know, and it is really, really difficult. And the same thing, if you were a child of a family where, you know, again, you had the same home the entire time growing up, mom and dad seemed really happy. Mom and dad suddenly saying, oh, yeah, no, we haven't loved each other for years and it's been awful. That's going to hit that adult child probably pretty, pretty traumatically because it's going to make them question oh, everything yeah. about this. That's why of the it can childhood. be so traumatic. So, it's like I was, yeah, I was growing up in a exactly. lie. That's the problem. Yes, oh, I was growing exactly. up in a lie. OK. Right. Um, yeah. And, oh. you know, when we have little kids, we're... When when people are thinking about getting a divorce and they've got younger kids, they are so conscious of how do I limit the impact on my kids, right? They are very, very protective of their kids, which is wonderful. And they certainly should do that. I think what happens is when you get older, you forget that, again, your kids still have the same emotions and they still need you to be a parent in that way. And so we kind of abandon our parental roles of needing to 
you know, care for our children and make space for their needs and hear them. But if we're if if you end up going through one of these, let's call it a gray divorce. I think the message here, what you're saying, Meredith, is that you've you've got to think about the kids just as much as you would have if they were ten, even though they might be thirty, because it can it can really be exactly. traumatic. Very interesting. The you know one of the things too, I, and again when I do this happy versus unhappy retiree research, because I know, and I think I remember doing this particular research around the same time I had uh, one or two close people in my life going through divorce. And I remember wanting to ask the question around marriage and divorce and how big of an impact is there on happiness. And I thought that the way it would go is that the more divorces, the more marriages you have, the lower your levels of happiness because divorce is so brutal. And I remember getting back the data and there was no material impact on happiness on the second marriage, which made me again, for, hmm. meaning that second people that had been gone through a divorce and they're remarried were no less happy at all than people that were still in their first marriage, which surprised me a little bit. I would, uh, um, now that I've thought about it more, it makes sense. And we've, we, we've, we've deemed this as you, everybody gets a marriage mulligan and it's don't, again, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I, the data even says it's, it's okay. You're now second, uh, when the data shows that, in a third and a fourth marriage, I do see in general happiness levels have declined. And maybe there's some other things happening if you're getting married and divorced multiple, multiple times. But uh, this is, again, part of what in what the happiest retirees know. One of the things we talk about is a marriage mulligan. And from what I can tell, at least in my data or my research, is that people go, can go through it and they can be just as happy as they ever were, even though they have to go through the trauma, to your point, of, of divorce. Exactly. I think that's actually a really excellent point of, you know, to, if you really are this unhappy with the person you're with, it's okay to divorce. I think people sometimes, you know, blow up the impact of divorces, like it is the worst thing in the world, so I can never do this. And they sacrifice their own happiness. I mean, you know, one of the biggest indicators of childhood adjustment is not, you know, if the parents are married or not, it's actually maternal depression. So if you have a terrible relationship with the person you're married to and you're staying together for the kids, you might actually be doing more harm. So divorce in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's just how you approach it. Say that again. So And that makes so much sense about it. Yeah, say that again. So you're saying one of the biggest... um you called this, you called it uh, maternal depression is worse or, or mm-hmm. second only to parents that are unhappy with each other. Can you say that again? So when we look at what what determines a childhood's adjustment, quote unquote, right? So, and, and adjustment's obviously a very, very broad word, but when we look at that, you have better outcomes for adjustment when you have parents who are you know, emotionally happy and able to be present with their children. So not the divorce. The divorce is not as big of a factor. So if you have two parents who are depressed and they stay together, it's worse for your child than if you have two happy parents who are divorced. Because again, it's it's about when you are going through something very heavy, right? Or if you have a, a relationship that is abusive or is just miserable, that takes up so much energy and you don't consciously realize it, but it is. And so that's less energy you can then expend to care for the well-being of your children. And then that is what impacts their adjustment. Does that clarify that a little more? Absolutely. And when you say adjustment, you mean define that as how well of an adjusted person you are, or are you talking about happiness levels? What, What do you mean by adjustment? 
Yeah, all the above, really. It's it's. Um, would you consider yourself to be a decently happy, healthy, well-rounded person, or you know, are you are you struggling? Do you have chronic substance abuse? Do you have um, you know debilitating other issues or something like that? So it's again just kind of overall well-being is what adjustment means. It's how you kind of talk about adjustment. The world, as we all know, has changed so much, and your financial situation has likely changed too. How you adapt to that change has a massive effect on your future. Maybe your mom or dad's health has declined. Maybe you recently had a baby or got a divorce or inherited some unexpected money, and you aren't sure how to invest it. Maybe you're one of the three million people who reportedly retired early due to the pandemic. Or perhaps you didn't retire, but your company decided to softly push you out the door. It's happened so much at some of America's biggest companies, they've even come up with a new word for it, surplusing. As in there's a surplus of humans and you're one of them. As if downsizing wasn't bad enough. And if you're facing that change, should you take pension payments monthly or a lump sum, a rollover IRA or something else? You may also be stuck in a static portfolio with the outdated 60-40 stock bond ratio that assumed interest rates and inflation would never go up. We are in the middle of the largest financial shift that we have seen in more than 40 years. Tectonic plates are shifting. We've moved from no inflation to hyperinflation, zero interest rates to higher interest rates. If you have questions about how to adapt to that or adjust to all these changes, just give us a call. Or better yet, find us at yourwealth.com. You can meet with a real live person in Atlanta or Tampa or Denver or Phoenix, or we can just do it over Zoom. I just had a great meeting with some wonderful folks from Cleveland. Yeah, Cleveland, Ohio. If we can get to know each other over Zoom, so can you and I. So reach out to our team at Capital Investment Advisors, the website yourwealth.com. That's Y-O-U-R, wealth.com. Let's go into what should people ask themselves when they're really thinking about going through a divorce? You know, we've kind of talked about this in a couple of ways. One, this is no small thing, right? Getting divorced is a big deal. Uh, it's also not the end of the world, right? So sometimes it gets over... Uh, we, we almost overestimate how horrible it is, trapping people in marriages that maybe they shouldn't be trapped in. But to your point, in a lot of ways for kids, it's better to have divorced parents than unhappy parents. So we've kind of said, we've kind of gone this this whole, this full gamut here. But let's say you're, you're thinking about this or our audience is thinking or they're in a rough spot and there's too much sand in the, in the dump truck <laughs> to clear out. What are the questions people need to be asking themselves before they really go through this process or think seriously about divorce? I think it's all about not just looking at the here and now, but really zooming out and looking at the bigger picture. Because the longer you've been married, the more your lives are going to be intertwined. And so then the harder it's going to be to separate them. And again, you know, if you've been unhappy with your spouse for years and your child has no idea, 
they are not going to suddenly say, oh, okay, you were so unhappy and dad was a jerk. Great. You know, and, and side with, side with you. That's not how this happens. In fact, it's usually the opposite. So you need to be very, very conscious and very intentional. Yeah. I had come up with, I think with like just a couple questions and, and really the questions, the meaning behind that is to be very intentional, very conscious and thorough and thinking about what happens, not just next week, next month, next year, but what happens in my bank account, in my relationships with my children, the relationships with my friends, family, community. You know, if you're getting divorced much older, um, let's say that, you know, you're, you're in that 65 plus, right? You're, you're around 70. And if you're a male and you're married to a female and you were the breadwinner, right? She was working from home or, or stay-at-home mom. My understanding is that anything acquired, so if you're the only one putting into that retirement account, that's considered marital assets, right? So then you might have to give up half of that. And are you going to be okay? Will you be able to sustain if you have to give up half of that at 65 or 70? So that's a big part of it. And then also the social capital is huge. We know that older people who are unpartnered and, and don't have a good social system tend to have worse health health outcomes. So if you split up with this person and if it gets very, very contentious, is it worth the risk or who are you going to lose in the process? And again, with your children, you might envision one outcome, but you have no control over how your children are going to perceive this change. Yeah. Yeah. So the, it again, in your, let's say you're, you're in your mid sixties or seventies, you may think your children react one way, one way. And you've seen this Meredith in, be relatively unpredictable. Oh, very much kids so. Kids can take it way harder than parents might think. Adult kids. Yes. I think that the best way to preserve a good relationship with your children when you're getting a divorce is to preserve how they're going to see the other parents. So not doing the mudslinging because I think people make the mistake of thinking, you know, well, they'll they'll just see it from my side and then that'll be fine. But you need to go into it assuming that your ki- your child is going to continue having a relationship with both people. With both, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Don't stop trying to undermine your your <laughs> stop trying to undermine your other parent because, you know, from their perspective, this is their parent. I remember actually at 17 um you know, when my parents had kind of gone through the mudslinging. And I remember saying to both of them, I'm like, I love you both equally and I need you to stop putting me in the middle. And it was, you know, it was kind of a profound thing and it really did end up creating some changes. But it was because I needed them to know that both of them telling me things I really shouldn't have known about wasn't actually helping me to feel closer, to feel connected or or trusting with either of them, right? You know, it's funny. Maybe I'll do that. I've got, and I don't, really fault i'm not gonna say which parent it is but they're still mudslinging 30 years mm. later okay can i ask you kind of a point of question yeah go ahead so yeah again we don't have to label which parent do you feel closer to the parent slinging the mud or the parent not slinging like trusting i guess close and trusting yeah, good good question you know they've been slinging mud for so long uh, i would say for the first 10 years there was they both were slinging lots of mud mm. even before so back when i was i remember I was like 12 or whatever mm. maybe i'm getting too personal here on the podcast <laughs> sorry therapist um, does it <laughs> it's okay uh and then i think that so the, then the typical mud slinging forever which i've just always thought was totally normal because that's how i grew up with it but then one parent did kind of stop that 
and, and another continued forever still to this day. And I think I'm, I actually just accept both. Of, I actually don't necessarily feel closer to one over the other. They, they, they I'm, they're so gigantically different. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I can't even believe they were ever married as parents. They're so unique that I, I love them each t- for totally different ways and reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's a, yeah. So I guess I would just say that they're kind of equal, equal is, is, oh, is well, to answer wonderful. your therapist like question. Yeah. I'm very, very glad to hear that by the way. I think that, yeah, if, if the mudslinging doesn't stop, it can be so, so disruptive. And I think what happens too is we forget that our adult children, they're not our financial, even if they are professionally a financial planner, an attorney, a therapist, whatever, we can't use them in that role when we're going through a divorce. We need to, again, remember that parent-child power differential and really, again, keep those roles in mind and those boundaries. Because if you suddenly are boundaryless because you know you and your son-daughter are good friends, that's fine. But again, they have another parent and this is traumatic for them. And they will feel less close and trusting of you if you entirely abdicate your responsibility as a parent. How much do you, in your practice, when you're, when you're helping couples, particularly those, let's say, baby boomer at generation and older, how much do you see the financial side of it really weighing on, on the couple? How often is that a big variable of making it worse than it otherwise could be? And, or let's say you have a really wealthy couple and they split up their money and it's mm-hmm. no big deal. They both still have plenty of money left. I think, again, every situation is so dependent. If you have two people who I know, I'm work- always asking for general. <laughs> I'm such a generalities human. I always want to estimate and generalize yeah. and everything under one umbrella. And I've realized, particularly when I talk to sci- scientists like you or psychiatrists, psychologists, medical professionals, it's harder to totally generalize. So I, I appreciate you can't really generalize. So you can just make up whatever your last example would be. <laughs> Yeah, the I last mean, cup rich couple I knew, oh. and they got divorced. <laughs> the last gosh, destitute couple that came into my office. Oh gosh, couples therapy is honestly one of the most fascinating things, and it's it's a lot of therapists don't want to do couples. It's one of those things you either love it or you hate it. You're either someone who yeah. loves working with couples, or you're like, I would rather get a root canal every day. You know, it's <laughs> and, <laughs> it just really depends. So I find couples work so fascinating because you just get you get a very, very different side of people. And, you know, it's one of those things where individually, if I'm seeing a client individually, they're going to tell me whatever narrative they want me to believe. If they're coming in with their partner and their partner vehemently disagrees, whatever they're saying, they'll call them out on it right there. So it's just a really, really fascinating world to operate in. And what are your, what are your top three? And this is again, another generality. Maybe it's distrust or, or, or what, part of what you were saying earlier, these grains of sand that what is, is there an overarching thing that seems to be an epidemic of why we get divorced in America? Uh, Maybe beyond just the happiness question. um, What, what do you see that, that shows up all the time? Uh, Like uh, your typical pattern of Mm -hmm. divorce. Why, why are people getting divorced in general? Like the actual reason. It's not unrelated to happiness, but I would say disappointment. Our expectations for what we thought 
marriage was going to be, what this relationship was going to be, like what child rearing was going to be, how we were going to do financially, how we were communicating. So often when we get to that point of no return, it's because we've been so disappointed for so long that again, you can't really see out. And so that's why addressing things as they happen and figuring out that balance and making sure to not just let everything go under the rug, you know, pick your battles, but also don't just let things build up. And what I hear so many times is parents saying, well, you know, when the, when the kids come, the kids almost act like this linchpin to keep the parents together, right? There's so much stress that comes with that first child. And for about 70% of people, their marital satisfaction takes a nosedive. For 30% of people, that actually goes up. No one stays the same because if you have children, I, I know anyone with children can attest to this. It's it's not just reshuffling the board. It's throwing the board out and saying, all right, new game. Let's figure it out. Yeah, and, totally and right. Yeah. yeah, nothing is going to be more trying on a couple than what happens there. And again, a lot of it is is just failed expectations and disappointments. And then when we decide, well, I want to stay with this person because of the kid, but our relationship centers around the business of managing the child rearing. We lose the connection. Business of kids. Listen, I got yeah. four of them, so I know it is a. <laughs> it's a whole bit. It's like a franchise business, or so. I got so many of them. But what about what, how do you fix that, uh, Meredith? When you say disappointment, I don't know if I've ever thought of it that way. But can you fix that, or do you just? Is it more about hey, you're on to be forthright and honest about hey, this is where I'm disappointed. What would be the fix to that? Again, in general, how can we get ourselves undisappointed as Mm. a very clinical term? (laughs) Yeah, I would say the best thing to do is one, address things as they're happening. Don't have like your your manifesto of every way this person has disappointed you for the last 18 years and then pull it out the day that the kid leaves and say, well, (laughs) let me just, you know, no, that doesn't work. You have to address things as they're happening in the moment. And you have to do it in a way that's not blaming, you know, where you're taking ownership and saying, hey, listen, I feel really hurt when this happens. And where you're more saying, can you please care about the fact that this hurts me rather than get into the you did, you did, you did. That doesn't work. So it's, it's really about, I would say, if we want to kind of wrap this up in a sentence or two, it's about finding a pattern of communication and having such a value on your partnership with the other person that you want to maintain that. And you want to maintain that if it means you making changes, if you if it means telling them something that's going on, if you need something different. It's really about valuing that partnership and working very hard to preserve it. Because I'm, I'm sure as you know, as with a marriage with four children, you know, happy, healthy marriages don't just happen. They're something, yeah, it takes work yeah. every single day and it's not 50-50, it's 100-100. I wanted to ask you one, and again, let's we can wrap this quickly, but trauma. Uh, families that go through, whether they've got a kid, they've got a family trauma, they have to go through something or they go through something together. I've seen that be just really hard to solve. Is that solvable? And why is that so brutal on marriages? Yeah, I mean, any kind of trauma, I think... If we just think about trauma in and of itself, right, it's something that almost creates this disruption in the timeline of your life, right? And, no and matter, I mean trauma like with yeah. a child, with a child, some, yeah. some, something with health, something mm-hmm. that goes wrong. Yeah. Those, I think, are some of the worst 
traumas because there's probably very little you can do. And the difference in what makes something traumatic versus not traumatic a lot of times is do you feel like you have an outlet where you can make sense of this and you don't have to just kind of hold it on in yourself, right? So that's why, you know, something as just awful as like a death of a child, if the parents feel like they can turn to one another in that, it might actually bring them even closer. It's still, nothing will ever take away the pain of that loss. But with a lot of other people, it's the same reason why the affair splits them up, right? Is that I don't feel like I can depend on you and rely on you to help me to make sense of this in a way that feels like we can get through it, right? Or it feels like it's you against me rather than you and I against this problem. Why do affairs happen? Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, mm, boy, there's there's a really great book. Uh, Esther Perel has a book called The State of Affairs. I would highly recommend reading that. Also, Mating in Captivity, they're kind of partner books. They both go into it. There's a million different reasons, but in some ways, in a lot of ways, I think especially people who start out in a happy relationship and one person ends up cheating, a lot of times, again, it's because it's like, I don't feel welcome. I don't feel supported. I don't feel like I know this person. And I don't feel like I have the ability to go to them and repair these things. And so it makes someone else look attractive. And sometimes even in happy relationships, an affair might not necessarily be about, I needed to hurt you or I needed to betray you. But through this affair, I actually learned a lot about myself and things that I didn't have or I wasn't getting that I actually need. So I never recommend people to, you know, have an affair to test the waters here, but I think it's, <laughs> I would be clear that that's not what I'm saying here, but I think, I think the point is with anything in life, it's, we don't get to choose the cards we're dealt. We don't get to choose the circumstances. We do get to choose how we respond to those circumstances and who's in our life when those circumstances happen or who we want to keep in our life and keep in our inner circle. That's all you have control over. And so some of it, again, is making peace with the things you can't control. And some of it is saying, things I can control, though, I really want to give my best effort because it matters. Meredith Shirey, thank you. Oh, thank you. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. This is provided as a resource for informational purposes and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. The mention of any company is provided to you for informational purposes and as an example only and is not to be considered investment advice or recommendation or an endorsement of any particular company. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk including possible loss of principal. There is no guarantee offered that investment return, yield, or performance will be achieved. The information provided is strictly an opinion and for informational purposes only, and it is not known whether the strategies will be successful. There are many aspects and criteria that must be examined and considered before investing. This information is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment, tax, estate, or financial planning considerations or decisions. Investment decisions should not be made solely based on information contained herein.